0: This morning's passage comes to us from 2 Samuel 13, verses 1 to 22. Now Absalom, David's son, had a beautiful sister whose name was Tamar. And after a time, Amnon, David's son, loved her. And Amnon was so tormented that he made himself ill because of his sister Tamar, for she was a virgin and it seemed impossible to Amnon to do anything to her. But Amnon had a friend whose name was Jonadab, the son of Shemaiah. David's brother. And Jonadab was a crafty man. And he said to him, "O son of the king, why are you so haggard morning after morning? Will you not tell me? Amnon said to him, I love Tamar, my brother Absalom's sister. Jonadab said to him, Lie down on your bed and pretend to be ill. And when your father comes to see you, say to him, Let my sister Tamar come and give me bread to eat and prepare the food in my sight that I may see it and eat of it, eat it from her hand. So Amnon lay down and pretended to be ill. And when the king came to see him, Amnon said to the king, Please let my sister Tamar come and make a couple of cakes in my sight, that I may eat from her hand. Then David sent home to Tamar, saying, Go to your brother Amnon's house and prepare food for him. So Tamar went to her brother Amnon's house, where he was lying down. And she took dough and kneaded it and made cakes in his sight and baked the cakes. And she took the pan and emptied it out before him. But he refused to eat. And Amnon said, Send everyone, everyone from me. Send out everyone from me. So everyone went out from him. Then Amnon said to Tamar, Bring the food into the chamber that I may eat from your hand. And Tamar took the cakes she made and brought them into the chamber to Amnon, her brother. But when she brought them near to him to eat, he took hold of her and said to her, Come, lie with me, my sister. She answered him, No, my brother, do not violate me, for such a thing is not done in Israel. Do not do this outrageous thing. As for me, where could I carry my shame? And as for you, you would, not, you would be as one of the outrageous fools in Israel. Now, therefore, please speak to the king, for he will not withhold me from you. But he would not listen to her. And being stronger than she, he violated her and lay with her. Then Amnon hated her with a great hatred, very great hatred, so that the hatred with which he hated her was greater than the love with which he had loved her. And Amnon said to her, Get up, go. But she said to him, No, my brother, for this wrong in in sending me away is greater than the other that you did to me. But he would not listen to her. He called the young man who served him and said, Put this woman out of my presence and bolt the door after her. Now she was wearing a long robe with sleeves, for thus were the virgin daughters of the king dressed. So his servant put her out and bolted the door after her. And Tamar put ashes on her head and tore the long robe that she wore. And she laid her hand on her head and went away, crying aloud as she went. And her brother Absalom said to her, Has Amnon your brother been with you? Now hold your peace, my sister. He is your brother. Do not take this to heart. So Tamar lived a desolate woman in her brother Absalom's house. When David heard of all these things, he was very angry. But Absalom spoke to Amnon, neither good nor bad, for Absalom hated Amnon because he had violated his sister Tamar. It's a very difficult passage. There's two ways of looking at it, and both should be considered, but especially the second one should be really dwelled on. The first way to look at it is to see how the story works and fits within the larger narrative of Samuel. In that case, the story comes and it prepares us for the coming revolution for the rebellion of Absalom, and it helps prepare the ground for why that happens. It also speaks, of course, to the fallout of David and Bathsheba's situation and David's great sin against Bathsheba and God and Uriah. So it has that narrative place. But it also has a deeper spot. You see, we can't just look at this story and think of it only in that term. We have to look at it and ask the questions that it demands that we ask. Because it is a story of brutality. It is a story about family, justice or injustice, abuse, responsibility, power. All these things are floating around and it demands that we ask questions, not just of what happened those thousands of years ago to Tamar in that situation but it asks us to reflect on issues of abuse and power today. And that's what we're going to have to try to do. There's a scholar named Anna Carter Florence at Columbia Theological Seminary, and she says this about this passage. It takes courage to walk into this story and ask which verbs are ours. It takes boldness to ask where the story could have gone differently if only someone had chosen a different verb. But asking such questions is our calling. You see, and she is right. This story demands that we enter into it. And if we look at the verbs in the story, the action words that say what people are doing, we realize that we are being asked to apply those words to us. What part do we play in the ongoing abuse in our world towards the vulnerable and specifically towards women? And we're being asked to enter into the story, and that's what we're going to attempt to do. We're not going to remain at arm's length. We're going to try to delve into it as best we can. And as we do this, we're going to look at three things. We're going to see the failure of a father, the failure of all of us, and then the hope for the world. Okay? Those three things. The failure of a father, the failure of all of us, and the hope for the world. So let's jump into the failure of a father. And here we're going to look at the context. What was life like for women and spouses and marriages and the idea of sexual relations in the ancient world? Not just in the Bible, but in the ancient world as a whole. And we see some differences. And we can't simply look back. You see, it's easy for us to look back as modern Canadians and look back at the way the ancient world handled relationships and, and, and sex and say things like, oh, they're so primitive. We don't even need, there's nothing we can learn from them. They're just a bunch of old, foolish, backwards people. Nothing we can learn. See, that attitude is common, but it's incredibly unhelpful. And it does nothing for us. We can't simply dismiss every generation before us because they thought differently about us on key things. What we can do, however, is enter into that culture and try to understand what were they thinking? How different was it? And why was it different? And was it that different? So, we look at the ancient world. Well, you don't have to go very far to realize that in the time of this story happening in the ancient world, they thought very differently about things. They did things with marriages and with relationships that we would never dream of. Abraham sends his servants away to his home country to find a relative for his son to marry. See, we don't do that. There's not many arranged marriages, certainly not in the Western world anymore. Aside from that, Jacob in the Bible spends 14 years working off a debt to marry two different women. And there's a whole story around that. But you see, that wasn't that strange because in the ancient world, there was a debt to be paid. There was a bride price to be paid. And so normally, the, father's, uh, the, sp- the husband's fa- family would pay that price. But in this case, Jacob is paying it. Now, that's something we don't do. And we could just say, stupid, primitive, but again, not helpful. Let's try to understand what's going on in this ancient world. What allowed this tragedy to happen to Tamar? Now, not just that. Think about the fact that men and women, or even women, thought very differently about life. And you can't just call the women deluded. They were products of their culture, but they were different than us. Rachel and Leah, after marrying Jacob, then begin a competition with each other to see who can produce more offspring for Jacob. And so they have a battle to have children and when both of their bodies cease to work because they're getting older, they, they then bring in their slaves to help sire more children, to help uh, to bear more children for Jacob. You see, that is a different way of doing everything compared to us. We wouldn't even dream of that. But again, it's not helpful to say the culture was dumb. That's that's, that's toy. That's a way of dis- dismissing a story so you don't have to deal with it. But that's not what we want to do here. So with that, now let's think about women. Women, when they reached the age of puberty, were very quickly found spouses. The father's job was to find a suitable man for their daughter to marry. The father would then provide a dowry to the man, but then the man would also pay a bride price. And the purpose of this was not merely because women were seen as chattel, though of course there was that element in a lot of the ancient world, but there was also a sense that that money was meant to help the family Start. So this new couple would have some resources and the ability to be stable and healthy and united and to get off to a good start. Because one of the things you find in the ancient world is their laws, as different as they are to ours, were geared towards creating stable and healthy families. So this is what happened to young women. Now, rape was always unacceptable. In the ancient culture, nobody was rape was never permitted. In fact, it was dealt with quite brutally at times. However, that being said, it was rooted. You see, the response to rape in the ancient culture was rooted in the whole culture. It it wasn't just a matter of what do we do with the situation of rape. It was what do we do with the situation of rape in a world where we think certain things about men and women and honor and shame. And so as a result, when an honor and shame culture idolizes a distorted image of purity and dignity, we shouldn't be surprised to see that the responses of that culture are often backwards as well. And so in the ancient Near East, in Assyria, even in the Code of Hammurabi, one of the earliest legal codes that we have, we find that the response to rape is brutal and punitive. So if a man violates a woman, then the punishment was that that, that man's wife was to be violated. Now, that's a brutal response, but that is a typical response of much of the ancient Near East. Until we get to the Bible. And the Bible is a very different approach, and we can't go into all the nuances of it. But we can say these few things that are relevant to the story we have here. First, Leviticus, Deuteronomy, and parts of Exodus speak about rape and seducing young women and women who are either engaged or not engaged. And a few things are very clear. The first one is incest is not permissible and not just incest with direct family members but even half cousins or whatever there's a lot a lot of rules about that so what amnon is proposing is vile according to god but there's also other things that the bible says about this and some of them will seem strange so we have to talk about it just a little and one of them is if a man rapes a woman the punishment is death the punishment is death now not always death In some cases, there was also the option for the man, the violator, the criminal, the offender, to marry the victim. Now, that can sound really difficult for our ears, because the thought of a woman who has been made a victim, who has been violated, who's been raped, to then be told you're going to marry your rapist, that is a difficult thing to hear. So what is God doing when he proposes that law? Well, here's what he's doing. Remember that this cult, what this culture does to women who are violated. It's an honor and shame culture. And like it or not, part of honor and shame was purity. Purity of everything, especially when it came to women. And so in this culture, now I'm not talking about God's culture here. I'm talking about the culture that, he, that he's speaking his laws into. In that world, when a woman is violated, although there may be rules to help her in some cases, she is seen as damaged goods in that world. She is not given a future. She won't be married again. She, has, she may even be killed. And essentially, a woman who has been raped is relegated to only a couple of options, poverty and prostitution. And no matter what, she's abandoned usually by her family in that culture. And as a result, that means that not only must she resort to begging and prostitution just to survive, but that sort of a life exposes her to greater abuse. So a woman who is raped in that, modern, that ancient culture is hopeless, helpless in the culture. And in comes the laws that God puts into the Bible. When he says, when he says that a woman should, can, could marry this, the violator, there's two things that need to be said. The first one is her prospects, if that doesn't happen, are hopeless. She's doomed. Death and worse suffering awaits her. So if she marries this man and the man is forced to take accountability, then what happens is she now has access to the resources of this man and there is at least hope for life and a future. Now, even if that still sounds brutal to you, here is the trump card that exists in Scripture. Exodus 22, verses 16 and 17, but we'll focus on 17, has this to say. If a man seduces a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall give the bride price for her and make her his wife. Here's the crux. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money equal to the bride price for virgins. Now, think about what's happening. The rule is this woman needs to be provided for and protected. You as a culture will not protect the woman who's been violated. So God sets in a law that says at very least she needs to have hope. But ultimate decision-making power, ultimate protection came from the father. The father had that trump card, the ace in the hole, where he could then say, no, I'm not going to marry my daughter to this person. I will take care of her. And so the responsibility for protecting and for nurturing and keeping a stable home in the ancient world was on the father's shoulders. Now, you can say what you want about the modern age and how the equality and how women and men share that responsibility. I get it. And that makes sense. Let's think about the ancient culture. What we're being told and what every ancient reader would have read when they read this is they would have been just as appalled as you and I. But they would have understood what we just talked about. They would have understood that, yes, this is terrible. Where's the father? The father should be here. And this is why we call this first point the failure of a father. This, these laws indict David. Now, his job was to care for her. But David had the power to protect Tamar in this violent and often oppressive world for women. He had that power within him. These laws were meant to shape societal opinions. As they read these laws, they were to come away from reading them saying, I'm a father. My job is to protect the vulnerable, especially my, my own children and my daughters. That was meant to not just be a rule that was rigid, but as you know, we often pass laws before our hearts are changed, hoping that as we live with those laws, it will change our hearts. And the point of the law was to draw fathers and men to their expectation to honor, love, and care for the vulnerable and for women in that culture. David, however, doesn't do it. We can't help but come away from this passage seeing that David is uniquely being positioned as culpable here. Now, think about David. He is the protector. When his son comes to him with this scheme, now he wouldn't have known as a scheme maybe, but there surely alarm bells should have been set off just as they were for you and I. When a, a man comes to his father and says, send your daughter, send my sister to me, but she has to come alone. And I want her to feed me privately and in person, from her hand. Even David, all of us, should at very least say, that's a strange request. It's not permissible for her to be alone with you as a temple virgin or as a a king's virgin daughter. David should have at least smelled something odd and said, okay, I'll send her, but I'm going to come with her. There should have been something there. So David either knows something's amiss and ignores it, or he's not attentive to it in which case he's let his guard down. He's not caring for his daughter as he should. Now, it's not just that. When he finds out about what happens to Tamar, we're told he gets angry. But that's all. He says nothing. He is silent. He allows the abuse that's already happened to go on unpunished. And there's incredible ramifications. There's incredible consequences for what David has done. But he is culpable. His denial of justice for Tamar leads not only to her suffering, but also to murder of Amnon later on by Absalom in the next chapter. It leads to rebellion in in his house as Absalom will then revolt against his father who wouldn't protect the family. But it also beggars an entire nation to civil war. All of this stems from David's inability. When the father in this story refuses to accept his place as protector, ramifications happen. There's consequences for it. There's no response in, for, for Tamar. And this is interesting, isn't it? Because David is a man who so far in the stories that we've read has shown that he's willing to be very quick and direct to bring judgment. When he heard Goliath trash-talking God, he immediately wants to fight him and kill him because that dishonor that was being done. When he hears that Saul was killed, he immediately strikes down the murderer on the spot. He laments when his enemy, Abner, the enemy general of Saul, is killed. In fact, even when he hears the parable from Nathan about a a rich man who stole a poor man's lamb, he says that man should be killed. He reacts quickly with justice, swift, vehement justice, in every other case, but now when his daughter is suffering and raped, he is silent we're not to let that go. We are to see and to call out the lie, the hypocrisy, the injustice, the hatred, the harm, everything negative that comes to Tamar, we can see as being lo- a lot of it is on David's shoulders, but not exclusively. And that brings us to the next part. It's not just the failure of a father, but it's the failure of all of us. So let's look at that. Look at the story. What we're going to do our So let's just walk through the story. Amnon, is a predator. Now he's a made one, isn't he? He has grown up in a house where his, he's seen what his father did. His father took Bathsheba and saw something with his eyes, desired it, and took it because he could. And so when Amnon sees his sister, half-sister, and he is filled with lust, the, the, the passage tells us it's love. There's a predator in him that has been bred in him, that predator spirit that has been let loose in the palace by David is now roaming in the hearts of his sons. And it's in Amnon. And we see Amnon is distinctly in control of what he does. He is not a victim of passion. Amnon is a calculated predator. So it says he loves her, which, of course, we have to ask questions. I think it's intentionally there to show us that, is this the way love responds? Because the moment we hear he's in love with Tamar, it says he made himself ill because it seemed impossible to do anything to her. Now think about that. He has made himself ill with this love, which means he takes this perverted desire that he has and he nurtures it. He cultivates it. He waters it like a precious thing to himself. And it makes him sick. It churns him up. It makes him anguished. His friend even notices he looks haggard as a result. He allows this wrong thinking to be nurtured in himself. And what is it he wants? You see, first he says it's impossible. Why is it impossible for him to do anything to Tamar? Well, it's because as a virgin, she would have been under guard. And to be very, almost too graphic, there would have been evidence. You see, when David sleeps with Bathsheba, there could be no evidence now, except for the baby. But when you sleep with a virgin, there could be other physical evidence. So he's a little concerned. He does not to do it without getting caught again, he's a predator. And notice that this passage tells us he's anguished because he thinks it's impossible to do anything to her. doesn't say with her. See, to her. She is object. She is a thing. And you're going to see that in greater measure. So Amnon is a nightmare of a human being. Nightmare. And then his friend Jonadab shows up, probably the last person he should be asking for advice. We are alerted to Jonadab's uh, treachery by him being called crafty by the, by the narrator, which directly makes us think about Genesis 3 and the serpent in the garden that is called crafty. So he then decides, creates a, this scheme. Let's take advantage of Tamar's goodness and David's stupidity. Go to your father, have him ask him for this request. Your father will let it happen because he's oblivious. And Tamar is so good-natured, so innocent, that of course he's going to come to help you. And when she does, take advantage of her. Now, again, David has a place here. He hears this story. He has nothing about it. So when Tamar then comes to Amnon, there's a lot of terrible things happening in the scene. When she gets there, she is asked to cook in front of him. Now, why is that? Know the term "feast your eyes upon this"? Think what that means. It means your eyes are treated to a feast. Is it possible? that in the depraved heart of Amnon, he wants to watch her prepare the meal, to watch her knead the dough, to watch her bend and twist and, and lurch and pick things up and to strive. Does he enjoy feasting his eyes on watching this woman work? And then when he's had enough, he sends away his servants, and that's, a, that's, a, that's, a cul- that's an implication there, isn't it? There's servants who know what's going on. And they, in the power structure of the day, have to respond to the prince. They leave the room when they're asked to. But we're left thinking, what if one of them had said, I'm not going? What if they stayed close enough to the door, which they probably did because they're within earshot because he calls them in afterwards? What if they had heard what was happening behind those doors? What if they had, knowing they would lose their job if they said something, what if they ran to somebody and said something? We don't know but we are being asked to see that there's more than just Amnon here who's culpable. It's Amnon, it's David, it's all those who are there, are all in some way implicated. The verbs belong to all of them. So, with that, he sends them away, and then he violates her. And then, But before he does that, you see Tamar's words. And Tamar, it's pitiful, it's helpless to listen to, but you, ha- you should come away being proud of Tamar. Let me explain why. We've just had the the scenario with Bathsheba, and we talked in the the sermons about how Bathsheba had no voice. She says nothing in the whole passage, really. Um, Now, here it's the opposite. Tamar, being confronted with what's about to happen, she speaks up. She tries. She does everything within her power to stop what is about to happen. So, She first draws attention to the fact that they are siblings. In fact, read the story and underline every instance of the word brother, sister, father. And you're going to be appalled. In fact, even the writer has Amnon say, come and lie with me, my sister. And then she says, don't do this, my brother. There's an appeal to the pity of Amnon and to us as readers to say, do you see what's happening? People that were to protect Tamar are abusing her. It's incredibly pathetic, I mean, meaning pathos-inducing. It's full of, uh, it makes us feel pathos and pity for her, and we should be. She then appeals and says, what will happen to me if you do this? And not only that, she says, what will happen to you? You're going to be a fool. She says this is an outrageous act. Well, the word in Hebrew is foolish. And And she says, it's a foolish thing you're thinking of doing, and you will be a foolish man if you do it. So she appeals to him. What's going to happen to her? To himself? To him as well? And then, is she buying time to hopefully avoid the inevitable? When she says, "Ask David. Ask our father. Maybe he'll just give me to you as a wife." Is that sincere, or is she just str- str- grasping at straws to hold off what she knows is coming? Either way, it's difficult to it's difficult to read. And then, David, what does Amnon do? He doesn't even listen. He ignores her and he takes her anyway. Why? Because he's seen his dad do that. He wants her. He can have her. Nothing can stop him. So why should he stop? It's, it's terrible. It's a terrible thing to read. And the moment, of course, that he has her is in, in showing great psychological understanding. The early, these ancient writers, he, the moment he has her, he says, get out. He hates her immediately. We could speculate as to why we're not told why. Is it self-loathing? Does he realize that even what he has done is despicable? And then he hates, he projects his hatred for himself, his own self-loathing onto her as the one who would allow him to do it? We don't know. But for whatever reason, he does the even more despicable thing and he kicks her out. And she pleads again and says, don't do this because it's bad enough what you've done. But now at least if you follow the laws and we get married, at least you can save face and so can I. But if you do this, There's no hope. And she's pitifully trying, and he kicks her out. Not only does he kick her out, but in your English Bibles, it says, send this woman away from me. He calls in the servant and says, send her away from my presence. It's not quite what it says. In the Hebrew, it says, send this away from me. He doesn't say woman. The word aish is not there in the Hebrew. It just says, send this away from me. Get her out of my sight. She is object to him. She is hated. She is victimized. It is terrible. And she then leaves with, it's pitiful, but also incredibly courageous. Because she won't allow the silence of her father and the servants and Amnon to be her silence. And she runs pouring ashes on her head and ripping the robes in typical ancient mourning. But she also runs out screaming and wailing down the corridors, drawing attention to the injustice. What else can a victim do? When there's no help for a victim, the only thing they can do is draw attention to the outrageous thing done to them and hope that someone will hear. And she does it. And she runs out weeping, hoping someone, anyone will do something. She runs into her brother Absalom, who immediately knows something is amiss with Amnon, and says, Amnon, have you been with him? But even Absalom, who is probably the finest character in this part of the story, who at least takes her in, and gives her a home, He even says, don't take this so hard, he's your brother. And he says nothing to Amnon, not yet. Now, we know in the next chapter, Absalom is going to murder Amnon for this tragedy. But we're left to wonder, why doesn't he do something right away? We're left to wonder, is it because it's a complicated situation? You can't just go killing a prince? Or is it because Absalom knows he wants to be king, but Amnon is the firstborn? And he's biding his time because he has to make a scheme here. Because if he's going to make a play for the throne, he needs to get Amnon out of the way. And does Absalom see an opportunity? We don't know. But we do know it's a horrible, horrible thing. So with those miserable things in place, what's the hope here? What is the hope? And here it is, I think. And remember, we have to actually take this to heart because in Canada, 44% of women self-report that they have been abused physically, psychologically, or sexually within the last year, 44%. And when we consider the more vulnerable sectors of women in our culture, like indigenous women, that number jumps up to 66%. This continues to happen. There continues to be. See, we we can poke fun and mock ancient stories because they're so different from us. My friends, we're no better. We haven't improved upon the ancients, despite our bravado and our arrogance. So what are we gonna do? What's the hope here? And the hope is, is difficult to see maybe, but it's here. So Tamar doesn't know what to do, and most, the most sad line, there's so many, but for me, the saddest line there is when she says to her brother, as for me, where can I carry my shame? Because when a woman is violated, and I don't pretend to know this, I'm not. I'm not a woman, of course, But when this happens, there's so many things going on, aside from just the societal shame. There is stigma, there is shame, there is a loss of livelihood, especially in the ancient world, and respect, and a future, and there's abandonment. But there's also issues like physical pain, nightmares, PTSD, depression, sadness, hopelessness, thoughts of suicide, inability to focus, inability to relate to men, trust issues, anger issues, blame, shock, numbness, disorientation, helplessness, fear, self-blame and guilt, unworthiness, and, of course, the stigma. There's still stigma related to sexual abuse. So when she asks, where do I take all this? Where do I take all this that's happened to me? That is not an ancient question. That is a very real, modern, always question. Where does she take her shame? How do we answer this question? It's unfair, isn't it? It's unfair what she is experiencing. Why should she feel ashamed for being the victim? And there it is. <laughs> and that's that's not blame the ancients alone, friends. Why do we victim? Why do we shame the victims so often? I can't answer it well, but here's what I do know. Let's let's consider what Scripture says about shame just a little. See if we can get some hope here. In Joshua five, there's this moment when joshua comes and when they get into the promised land all of israel gets in the promised land he says this um oh god says this to to israel actually he says today i have rolled away the reproach the shame of egypt from you now israel coming out of slavery would have had stigma not the same as sexual abuse though i'm sure that happened as well but there's a stigma related to it there's a loss of dignity obviously there's shame there's injustice there's violence that's been done there is this weightiness, like a stone of shame that hung on Israel. And the freedom from that stone and weight of shame is when they get out of slavery, when they're freed from it. Now, the reason I find that very important is because freedom today and freedom for sexual abuse, people who have been sexually abused, is not circumstantial. It's not to merely taking them out of that abusive situation, though that's part of it, of course. There's this other stuff that stays with them forever, really. Where do they take that? Where where does that go? And the answer, I think, for us comes in Scripture. You see, it comes with Hebrews 12, 2. It says this, Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. You see, when Jesus is on the cross, he wasn't in a loincloth. He was naked. That's what the Romans did. Part of the crucifixion, part of the the punishment of the crucifixion was to shame the person. Christ on the cross not only feels his own shame at being uncovered before this world, but what we learn in Scripture is that Christ, when he suffers, he doesn't just suffer his own shame, but he suffers yours. In Acts chapter 9, when he appears to Paul on the road to Damascus, he says something interesting. He says, "'Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me?' And the word persecuting there is the word to be hunted, the word to be hounded and dogged. And this is what shame does, right? It, it's there all the time. It's, it, it, it colors everything we do. And when Jesus says, "'Why are you persecuting me?' What he is saying is, as the church, as his people are being persecuted, Christ himself suffers their shame, their persecution. And so on the cross, when it says that Christ, dis, Christ uh, disdained and, um, well, it wasn't disdained, what's the word there? Despised the shame of the cross. He takes our shame. Those of us and those people who have been abused physically, psychologically, sexually, doesn't matter. Your shame was endured on the cross. Christ didn't just feel generic shame. He felt exactly what you were feeling. He felt your shame on the cross. And you know what's interesting about shame being considered uh, as a stone is that in Matthew 28, 2, at the resurrection on Easter, it says that the stone was rolled away, almost like a direct reference to Joshua. Because when Christ is raised, he bore our shame, but then he rolled away the shame as well. So that, here's the challenge, in this world, you're going to still have the consequences of abuse. You and I can repent of it, we can be freed of it when we go to Christ, but there's still the consequences of abuse and structures of abuse that we have to address. Our job is to do that in this world. We must deal with those things, and if you've been abused, you will need to bear the consequences of what happened to you. Not because you're, you're accountable, like you did something wrong, but because you still will have stigma. But what Christ is saying is you don't need to, that the shame you feel is actually is actually illegitimate because God has taken that shame. People may treat you shamefully. They may treat you differently. You may still struggle. You may still have PTSD and nightmares and trust issues, but those things don't need to be the final word. And Christ is there suffering with you the entire way. And let me close by adding one thing that may seem strange. If there's somebody watching or somebody who has abused other people, if you are Amnon in this story, there's consequences. In this world, and you will face them. And there is consequences in the next world. However, even there, I see the Psalm, Psalm 73 says that we what we do is we take on pride. It says, Therefore pride is their necklace, violence covers them as a garment. You see, Amnon chose to cover himself in this violence. He chose to make that his garment. But Christ comes and says, It's despicable, but I have even borne that sin on the cross. And if now you are willing to take off that garment of violence and put on my garment of righteousness, even that can be forgiven. There will still be difficulty. You will still suffer in this world. You'll still have to deal with a lot of baggage and unwind a lot of problems. But there is hope for all in the gospel. That is a very radical, countercultural thing to say, and it was then, and it is now. There is hope in situations of abuse because Christ was raised there's so much more we could say but I know time is going thank you so much I know this has been a difficult passage but my friends let's do better (laughs) let's do better let us be a church and a people that look to the world and look for injustice and let's not be silent let's find ways to call it out and change it to comfort those who have been abused and to help those who are abusers if we can Let us be Christ in this world, rolling away the stone of reproach. Let's pray.